Good morning, everybody. I'm going to interrupt your fellowship, as hard as that is to do sometimes. Good morning. If you can find your way to your seats, uh, we'll get started here. Um, glad that you're joining us this morning here at Grace Church of Rancho Cucamonga. We are a church that is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel, dedicated to uh, biblical exposition, teaching from God's word. If you do not have a Bible, um, we would love to get one in your hands. It will help you follow with our service a little bit better. We have some in the lobby. If you're visiting us for the first time, we'd also like to extend a warm welcome to you. We're glad that you're joining us here this morning. Uh, We'd also uh, uh, encourage you to visit our welcome center or welcome table in the lobby as well after the service. We'd love to meet you, get some more information about our church into your hands. Uh, Just briefly, before we begin our uh, worship service, I just want to draw your attention to our bulletin this morning. If you grabbed a bulletin on the way in, um, I'd really encourage you to make use of that. We have a section in the order of service, if you open it up, that just says has a little bit of comments from our pastor about our new song we're going to be singing this morning. Also, it has some explanations about our corporate prayers. Uh, If you are new to our church, we have uh, prayers of confession, prayers of supplication. We encourage you to read through those regularly as we switch them up uh, every Sunday or so. Also, on the back of your bulletin, you're going to see some announcements. We really want to bring your attention that we will not be meeting next Sunday evening, um, February 13th at 5 p.m. We will not be meeting for our Sunday evening gathering, also a members meeting on February 20th. If you're a member of Grace Rancho, uh, be sure to mark your calendars for that. We would invite you guys tonight, everybody invited back tonight for our Sunday evening gathering for more time in God's Word and prayer together, a time of more personal fellowship with one another. Uh, We look forward to seeing you all there. If you would now stand and join me as we read God's word, as we prepare our hearts for worship, we're going to be reading from Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3 says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servants of the Lord, who address the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Join me as we sing, O Church Arise. our captain for now the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given with shield of faith and belt of truth we'll stand against the devil's lies and army bold whose battle cry is love reaching out to in darkness Our call to war To love the captive soul But to rage against the captor And with the sword That makes the wounded whole We will fight with faith and valor When faced with trials on every side Come is secure. 
This morning, as Brian said, we're singing a new song, and it's called Almost Home. And so often when we sing on Sunday mornings or just in life, we think of uh, the now. We think of the fact that we're saved now, that we're forgiven now, that because of those things we can be thankful now. And this is such good news for us. But Scripture also reminds us to focus and put our attention on the future hope and glory we have in Christ. First Peter 1.13 tells us to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation, the coming of Jesus Christ. And so we ought to set our focus on this glorious future we have with Christ. And when we do that, we are reminded that this life is a pilgrim journey. It's not our true home, and that our true home will be in the future in heaven with Christ. And that's what this song, through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now, we're almost home. land is calling, we're almost home, and not a tear shall fall, then we're almost home, make ready now your souls for that together we're 
you to turn with me in your Bibles to, we're going to read out of the book of Psalm, Psalm 110, for the morning scripture reading, Psalm 110. Follow along in your Bibles as I read Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the days of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Join me now as we go before the Lord in a prayer of confession. Father, we come to you with a prayer of confession. We realize we are approaching a holy God who is the creator and sustainer of all things. And as your word says, you know all the stars by name. And how much more do you care for us and love us and provide us each day? So, Father, we gather here this morning and we examine ourselves. And we compare that to the perfect Holy One of your Son, Jesus Christ. We know we have sinned and fall short of your glory. We come before you now as broken people and confess that we've been sinful this week. We've not allowed you to take control of our lives. Instead of looking to you for peace and comfort, we've rejected you and questioned you. Instead of coming to the God of all creation, we've focused on ourselves. We've focused on our problems, and instead of coming to you with our burdens, we've tried to solve them ourselves. We recognize we live in a depraved and sinful world which exposes us to many challenges. And as we are faced with these trials and various struggles, whether it be in relationship with others, with parents, with children, friends, family, 
difficult financial abilities, physical sickness and illness, or the battle of our own thoughts and our minds. We confess that so often that we lose sight of your goodness and your gracious love, and we fail to see that you are sovereign over all things. Lord, we confess that we have relied on what we think is true, and we've put the faith, our faith, in not in your true holy word. Lord, the sin of pride has crept in our hearts, and it's taken hold of us, and we've selfishly pushed you aside. So we come to you now, and we ask that you forgive us from our selfishness. We pray that you will increase our vision of your glory and help us to be faithful servants to you. We pray that we do not lose sight of the fact that you are an everlasting God, the creator of all, the beginning and the end, who does not faint, who does not grow weary. Lord, forgive us for our unfaithfulness, and may we turn from ourselves and turn to you for wisdom. We're thankful that we can come to you for strength and comfort. And our comfort is to know that you have defeated every sin and that we can cast all our burdens on you. Lord, we ask that you will give us direction to wait for the Lord to renew our strength. And we ask that through all of this, that your will be done. In your son's name, amen. Amen. Would you please stand as we continue singing?
people together before the Lord again as we offer our supplication to him. God, we come before you again this morning as we bring our specific request pertaining to the life of the church, our community, and around the world. Lord, make our requests bold, knowing that you are capable of answering them perfectly because your ways are higher and greater than our ways. So as we pray for our congregation today, we ask that we will speak truth in love. First, our love should be pointed towards you and for all your goodness and blessings that you shower with us each day. May we never lose sight of your never-ending love. And next, may this love, may the love show to us as be reflected back into our own lives and shown to each other. We pray we will be characterized by love to one another, which will be evident in the ways that we interact and that we serve one another. Also, Lord, allow us to put aside our selfishness of our own hearts and our love for our neighbors as ourselves, as you command us to do in your word. Lord, we want to pray for specific members at Grace Rancho, and this morning we pray for those who are married. We know from your word the value and high expectations of living you have for those who are married. We pray for strong marriages, that they will be rooted in the truth of your word. The love for each other will be unselfish, and communication with each other will be clear. May the marriages be an example, not only to each other here at Grace Rancho, but to the communities that we live in. We pray these marriages will be focused on your word. We want to pray for churches who teach and preach your gospel. So this morning we pray for Grace Church of Simi Valley. We pray for Pastor Jordan Baker and the elders, as even this week they're traveling to New Hampshire to support the Ladukes and set up their new church plant. What a continuous blessing they are as an exampleness and a faithfulness to you. May their leadership and example be structured around your truth. May they continue to be faithful and bold in proclaiming your word and gospel. May they be a church that boldly proclaims your word. And may the congregation there be dedicated to pursue you more each day. May they be known for holding your word on high. We're thankful for their example of the gospel and center ministry. Father, we pray, too, for those who are serving as missionaries in countries around the world who may not have the same freedoms as we have here in America. We pray directly for Cecil and Deb Odell as they share the gospel to Japanese students. We pray that through their everyday endeavors, they may take advantage of the opportunities to share the gospel with those. May their gospel message and the gospel work be a tool and a resource to use to bring others to a saving faith. And as we pray for the countries around the world, we pray for the country of Czechia, located in Central Europe, a country in which is primarily known as non-religious, a landlocked country that's filled with crime, sexual immorality, substance abuse, depression, and suicide. Lord, we pray that you will lift up the spiritual heaviness in that country. We pray for the Christians who are living there. Lord, give them courage and boldness to be faithful, to share the gospel to others and to other countries surrounding them. We pray that Czechia would be radically changed from their sinful ways into a gospel-based country. Lord, we are thankful that we can bring these requests to you. 
And we know that you will carry them out perfectly according to your will. We ask them all in your son's name. Amen. If you would stand again as the men come forward, we'll take the offering. Awesome singing this morning. Praise the Lord. Amen. Wasn't that a great time of singing already to focus on Christ and all that he is for us? We get to do that a little more this morning as we're going to open up into Mark chapter 12. Before we do, um, let me pray. Our desire 
this morning, Lord, is to see Jesus more clearly. This is what the text has for us. It is what we need. And Lord, for those of us who have a fog, those of us who are seeing things but only blurry, or those of us who have not yet seen at all, we ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit enlighten, illuminate, clarify, bring understanding, do so in ways that are undeniably divine. We ask that it would be clearly your work and not any human work that changes us this morning as we behold the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. So you can open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be in 35 to 37. Things are not always as they seem. Appearances can be deceiving. Don't judge a book by its cover. Think with me, we have these sayings. Is the truth always self-evident? Is reality, the the way things actually are, always obvious? The answer, of course, is no. There are some things that we do not understand at first glance. It is often that our first impressions are mistaken. We could see the poor guy on the subway dressed in rags and not realize he's actually a world-class musician. Or the man driving in luxury, wearing the nice clothing, is actually bankrupt. Or take Instagram, for example. The life presented on the screen is actually neatly curated to only present something on the outside which is not actually true. Real life, things are not always as they seem. Appearances can be deceiving shouldn't judge a book by its cover. Now, it's one thing to get wrong impressions about a person, another individual that you meet. It's one thing to draw conclusions and realize you're mistaken later on about another person at your work or maybe here at church or maybe even someone that you've met on the street. It's one thing to do that. But what if you were wrong about something that had much more eternal consequence? Or mistaken about something that would affect your eternal destiny? What if your vision of reality itself, heaven and hell, were not quite clear? And you lived and made decisions based on something that was close to the truth, but not quite the truth. So the text we're going to look at this morning, I want you to envision yourself as if you're driving on a dark, rainy night. Visibility is low. Road is narrow. You can see, but barely. It's dangerous out there. You can navigate, but with great struggle. And I want you to understand this text that we're about to look at as a sunrise that burns away the fog, that dries up the rain, that brings things into clarity so that we can understand Jesus Christ as he truly is. 
Because some of us have certain impressions about Jesus that are less than reality. Ideas, maybe even biases, that we've accumulated through the years of our living that we've come to think about Jesus that may not be entirely true. So I want to look at this text. You're in verse 35 to 37. I hope you have your own copy of God's Word. You're really going to need it this morning. I'm really going to ask you to follow along and follow along closely. Um, in full disclosure, I was looking at the text that I was going to preach on Monday, and I had a meeting with some of the guys, uh, and we're talking through it, and I was planning, if you've got your Bible in front of you, I was planning on going from verse 35 all the way to 44. Now, as I said that, probably the guys I was talking to all laughed at me in their hearts because they know that that's a, that's a bit of a chunk. But I was thinking about doing that, and they all kind of suggested, maybe do, you know, we'll do a little bit of a smaller bite, you know, that might be something that you can handle. Um, and, and I thought, well, I don't know. I, I kind of want to see if we can fit it all. I feel like there's kind of a, a connecting theme, and I do believe there is. And as I began studying, I was getting more and more into it, as is the case. You start seeing things you didn't know were there the first time through. And then I went to listen to R.C. Sproul and see what he had to say about this text. And one of the first things out of his mouth as he began to teach it was this. It's almost blasphemous to think that I can cover everything in verses 35 to 37 in one sermon. And I thought, okay, Dr. Sproul, 35 to 37 it is. Thank you. Don't want to be guilty of any blasphemy here. And so here we are. We're just going to focus on this small text. But I think he's right. Because the deeper you go into it, the more you see, wow, there is something profound here. And I think so many of you, if you're a Bible reader, if you're, if you're a believer that regularly reads through the Gospels, you would have read this many times, and I wonder how many times you've skated over it without pausing to reflect, reflect on the significance of what's here. I myself am guilty of this. I go, wow, that's a little confusing. Okay, the next part, though, I like that, and I move right on. If you're not a Christian, and you're here this morning, first of all, welcome. I'm glad you're here. I hope that you are able to understand what we're doing here. We're, we're teaching through the Bible, and in this particular section, I'm going to show you what three of the earliest biographies of Jesus uh, teach, and particularly one section. This section speaks of what Jesus thought about himself, and it was so significant that Matthew and Mark and Luke all recorded it, and the church, the early church loved this particular section of Scripture because it reveals what Jesus claimed to be, and it forces you, if you're not a believer, you've you got to wrestle with what he's saying here and either come to the conclusion that he's crazy, he's lying, or what he's saying is true. It kind of forces your hand a little bit. You, you can't remain neutral after you understand what Jesus is getting at here. And if you are a believer, I, I think what you're going to see is this is a little bit of a hard nut to crack. Uh, this is a little bit difficult, and you might have read it already. Some of you read the text before showing up to church. You perhaps read it with your family, and I wonder if you're going, okay, what do we do with this? What does this mean? And here's what I want to ask of you. In fact, I would ask if you're a longtime Bible scholar or if you're a brand new, you know, brand new to church, you're not even a Christian yet, I want to ask you to get a Bible you know, I'm almost tempted to have someone run out and get Bibles for those of you who don't have it. It's that important. I mean, it's always important. But in this particular sermon, we're just going to look at the text, line by line, phrase by phrase. In fact, 
If I were preaching this in a seminary class, a preaching lab, you know what they'd do? They'd probably fail me, okay? Because the outline is not going to be anything flashy. Those of you who love outlines, sorry, okay? Those of you who love the alliteration and everything starts with an A or a B or something, none of that, okay? Everybody know up front, I'm just going to look line by line. You got that? That's all I'm going to do. Don't be surprised when there's no outline. Everyone good? We're just going line by line. Now, I'm going to go slow enough that you follow along, but if you're looking at your Bible, you know, have it open, follow along. Kids, grown-ups, everybody, get a Bible open, look at it, follow along, and I want to show you line by line the meaning of this text and then begin to talk about its implications, okay? But we want to look at the text and let the text speak. So, we got that. Is there going to be an outline, guys? There's not going to be an outline. It's just going to be the the words, okay? We're going to go line by line, phrase by phrase. I'm going to do slowly so you can follow along, but we're going to start. Let me read the whole thing, and then we'll dive in. Verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. First phrase we're going to look at, and as Jesus taught in the temple. And as Jesus taught in the temple. This is a phrase that reminds us of the context of this event. Look backward with me to chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, which describe the triumphal entry. Jesus, for three years, ministered in Israel all around. He did miracles. He proved who he was and his power to so many. He drew a crowd. And as he finally turned to come back to Jerusalem where he would die, as he entered Jerusalem, the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. That's verse 10, Hosanna in the highest. He was received as the Davidic king, recognized and even celebrated as the Davidic king. Monday morning, that was Sunday, on verse 12, he comes in on his way into Jerusalem. He stayed at Bethany, which was a small city outside Jerusalem. He's coming in, and on his way in, he sees a fig tree, has all kinds of leaves, doesn't have any fruit. Jesus sees that as symbolic of Israel itself, which appeared to be fruitful, but was actually barren. Israel appeared to have godliness, was actually apostate, and he curses the fig tree to demonstrate what he's about to do to Israel itself. He enters into the temple, cleanses the temple. They're doing all kinds of things they shouldn't do in the temple, selling and buying, and it's like a bazaar. It's like a marketplace, and Jesus turns over tables and corrects them, and that's what he does Monday. He leaves Monday evening, verse 19. He goes out of the city, stays another night at Bethany. Tuesday morning comes back into Jerusalem, And on his way in, he points to the fig tree. He teaches his disciples about the essence of following him, of faith and prayer and forgiveness. And then he begins to face different challenges from those in the temple courtyards. That's Tuesday. And in the section we're at now, it's still Tuesday. 
And so he first dealt with the Sanhedrin representatives, questioning him about his authority. Who are you to do what you did to the temple? And then he tells them a parable to show that you are the religious leaders who are rejecting the Messiah. And then it's after a political, or sorry, after a spiritual question, there's now a political question. He, uh, he gets another group of people who come up, they try to trap him in his talk. This is chapter 12, verse 13. And they ask him about paying taxes, which would have been a, an incendiary topic. Hey, who, 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 should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus responds, verse 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that belong to God. They marvel at him. Then there's a theological question. The Sadducees coming and asking about the resurrection. Jesus corrects them. Finally, in what we've been looking at the last few weeks, a scribe comes up, and this guy's not as antagonistic as the others. He comes and asks about the most important commandment, to which Jesus replies, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And That's where we are. He's faced the antagonism of questioners trying to discredit him. He's answered about the greatest commandment. And now, as he's teaching in the temple, he turns a corner and begins to go on the offensive as Jesus taught in the temple. Next phrase. He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Our second phrase, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He is now asking them a question. I want to note something real quick that I like to point out from time to time. It says, as Jesus taught in the question, or sorry, in the, taught in the temple, but then he goes on to teach by doing what? He asks a question. He says, why do the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? I want to remind all of you who desire to teach, whether it's in Sunday school, whether it's your own children, whether it's one-to-one counseling, whether it's small groups, whether it's preaching someday, as Jesus did, teaching often takes the form of asking good questions. Teaching, we often think, is just disseminating information, pouring it out, data dump, And yet, Jesus taught, but how did he teach? He asked questions. How much more of an effective and persuasive teacher might you be to your own children, to those around you, to those you're counseling, if you would master the art of questioning as Jesus did? So he's teaching, but he's teaching through asking a question. Now, what is this question? Look down again. The question is this. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David. The scribes, these were the well-educated, these were the translators of the law, these were the educated uh, elites of the spiritual uh, sect of Judaism of the day. And it's saying there, how, he's questioning them, how do they say, why do they say, how come they come to this conclusion that the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David? Now, what he's asking, I I hope if you're following this, you would understand that He's actually questioning something that everyone knew and believed. The Messiah or the Christ is going to be the son of David. No Jews doubted that. None of them. 
They all knew that David was the greatest king in Israel. They all knew the Davidic promise that promised someone from his line would establish an everlasting kingdom. They all waited it. They had heard prophecies, probably from childhood up, that those that there would be a coming Davidic king who would restore the kingdom, would establish righteousness. See, after David's kingdom, the kingdom eventually fell. It got split. It divided. And yet, along the way, there were prophecies that someone in David's line would come and restore the kingdom and establish righteousness. Everyone knew that the Messiah was the son of David. The son of David referring to not David's actual literal one, you know, one generation removed son, but referring to someone from the line of David. The scribes taught that and everyone believed that what Jesus is doing here, he's questioning, he's causing them to question one of the most foundational beliefs they had. And he's doing it on purpose. He's strategizing here. He wants to begin creating a tension. Son of David. Why do the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? The other thing you need to understand here is if you were to go back a couple chapters in chapter 10, you remember Bartimaeus, the blind man, who's begging for mercy? How did he call out to Jesus as he walked by? Son of David, have mercy on me. In other words, the blind man even knew that this guy was the son of David. He knew that Jesus was the promised Davidic king. Jesus was going to come. And when he entered into Jerusalem, what did they say? The, father, the kingdom of our father David's finally coming. In other words, they recognized Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was the Davidic king. Jesus knew that about himself, understood that about himself. The people around him knew that about him because of all the miracles he'd done, all the teaching he'd done. He was the perfect fitting for the bill. He was the son of David. Everyone knew it, and now Jesus is questioning it. Why do they say that the scribe is the, or the, the, the Christ is the son of David? Why is that? See, one of the best ways to teach is to create mental dissonance in your listeners, to present one thing that's true and another thing that's also true, and sometimes there's like, wait, how can these both be true? You put them on the horns of a dilemma and you cause them to think. And in thinking and in unraveling the riddle, you come to a much greater understanding. Well, this is Jesus causing the first question to start turning the wheels in his listeners' minds. Is the Christ the son of David? Is the Messiah truly the descendant of David? He's putting up the dilemma. Now, keep following me. Let's look at our third phrase. David himself... In the Holy Spirit declared, pause there, Jesus is now going to quote David, King David, the greatest king in Israel, and see what David thought about the Messiah. And he says, look at that little phrase, in the Holy Spirit. David wrote his Psalms in the Spirit. What that means, two things that Jesus is saying here. One, this was written by David you know, all kinds of higher critics who doubt the authority and inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible will go, well, how do we know if David really wrote the Psalms? Jesus knew it, and all the Jews knew it, that it was David, and he establishes that fact here. But he also says that David himself, look at those next words. David, in the Holy Spirit, declared. Do you ever want evidences of the inerrancy and inspiration of the Bible? Look for little instances like this. 
Jesus is saying that when David spoke, he was speaking in the Holy Spirit. That the words were, yes, David's words, but they were so inspired by the Spirit that they were also the Spirit's words. Whenever you are reading the Bible, you're reading something that is both given by man and also given by God. It is both, it has a human author and a divine author. So every psalm, according to Jesus, this is written by David, but it's given by the Holy Spirit. This is inspiration. What did David have to say? Let's look at our fourth phrase, the quote. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus is quoting David's psalm, Psalm 110. Psalm 110. If I were to ask you, what's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament? What is the psalm that the New Testament writers loved the most and included in most of their writings? If you raised your hand and said, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, you would be wrong. Because the answer is, guess where I'm going? Psalm 110. It's one of the most quoted of any Old Testament passage in the New Testament. The New Testament writers loved Psalm 110. Kent read it this morning, beautifully, I might add. And I wonder how many of us went, huh? The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand, and then there's talk about corpses and bashing skulls and establishing rule. What is going on? Well, the early church loved that, and it's quoted so much in our New Testament. And this is what Jesus brings up, and he's saying, okay, look at the first verse of David's 110th Psalm, where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. All right, let's, let's unpack what he's saying there. Turn over, keep your finger in Mark, and turn over to Psalm 110. Because I think you'll see it a little more clearly when you, we look at the, the Psalm itself. The Lord says to my Lord, let's look at start right there. If you're looking closely at the words themselves, you will notice that the first time the Lord is used, that it's in all capital letters. Do you all see that? The first way word, Lord, is all capital letters. And then you'll notice when he says to my Lord, there is the capital L, but then it's all lowercase Lord. Lowercase letters. What is going on in the Hebrew behind the English translation? Let me tell you real quick. The first L-O-R-D, all caps, is the Hebrew word Yahweh. Some of you already know that. Yahweh. This is not a title. This is a divine name. When God revealed himself to Moses, and God said, I am who I am, referring to his self-existence, He revealed his name, and his name is Yahweh, okay? Yahweh is the name of God, and this is what it's saying in Psalm 110, verse 1. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. But then, what does the second Lord mean? What is the second Hebrew word there for Lord? Because it's a different word. And that word is the word Adonai. Which means, which, which is a title, it's not a name, it's a title referring to sovereign one, master, 
Lord. He is saying here that Yahweh is speaking to Adonai and telling the Adonai to sit at the right hand of God until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, what's interesting about this is that the name or the title Adonai is often used in reference to Yahweh. In other words, Yahweh is his name, but Yahweh is an Adonai. Yahweh is a sovereign one. Yahweh is Lord and Master. Psalm 8.1. Many of you know this, this psalm? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You remember that? If you look at the Hebrew, it's O Yahweh, our Adonai, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In other words, Yahweh is being described as the Adonai. Do you see that? Yahweh is the sovereign one. Yahweh is the master. Yahweh is Adonai. The title is given to Yahweh. So that's the title. Now what is happening here? Now come back with me. Think about the text. Let's look back in Mark chapter 12. Jesus is quoting David. And David is referring to someone else who is distinct from Yahweh and yet is Adonai. Who could that possibly be? Well, the interpreters who studied this came to understand that the Adonai was none other than the Christ, the Messiah. That David, the highest king that Israel ever saw, was recognizing there's someone greater than me that I call Adonai. David had a master. Who could that be? Well, the nation of Israel, who was greater than the king? God, that's it. It was a theocracy. God ruled over Israel through his king. That was the way it was intended to be set up. So if you're asking, who is greater than David? Who is the Adonai that David worships? Who is the Adonai he's referring to here? It's none other than God himself. It's a divine figure. It is a divine Messiah. You say, okay, Eric, what, what's going on here? He, he's saying to this, this person, this Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Sit at my right hand. What's the right hand of the king? It's the greatest position anyone could ever sit in. It's the highest, most exalted position. In other words, Yahweh is saying to the Adonai, sit at the highest place of the universe This person who sits there is greater than presidents, greater than kings, greater than emperors, greater than any person, greater than the wisest philosopher, the most brilliant politician, the most decorated poet or prophet. No one has the ability to sit at the right hand of the Father except this Adonai is welcomed and says, sit at my right hand, the most exalted place in the entire universe. Who is? is that it's the Messiah. Let's look at our fifth phrase. And this is where he brings out the horns of the dilemma. Verse 37. David calls him Lord. David himself calls him Lord. So David's calling someone Lord. Okay, here's his question. So how is he his son? What is he doing with this? Okay. The scribes say that the Messiah is a son of David. That is, he's a descendant as a man from the Davidic line. 
And yet this psalm, Psalm 110, is saying that David had a Lord who is Adonai, who is, who is equal with God, who sits at the right hand of the Father. The Messiah is on one hand David's son, and on another hand David's Lord. That's the question that he lingers out into the crowd like a hook trying to get people to bite. Those questions, or that question that's now out there amongst all the listeners, has the potential to explode your understanding of Jesus. How could the Messiah be the son of David, a man by descent from the lineage of David's house, and simultaneously be the Lord of David, divine king, messianic king, who rules over even David himself. How is that possible? What is he doing here? Isn't this a good question? I mean, you guys got to wrestle with it a little bit. Okay, we've got David's son, David's Lord. How can he be the same? Because you're thinking of a son. A son is junior to his father, but a Lord is greater than his father. And we're saying those both are the same. They are both true in the person of Jesus Christ. How are they both true? How is he the son of David and the Lord of David at the same time? time. This good question creates a tension. It creates a curiosity. He's leading his people to now discover. It says that they responded to him. Look how they said, the great throng heard him gladly. They were, they were, they were issued these questions and they began to go, wow, things were beginning to click. But what are we supposed to make of this? <laughs> what, is, what is going on here? What are we supposed to do with this? What's interesting about this You don't see in the text Jesus give the answer. He lets it sit. I'm tempted to do that. All right, we're done. Let's go. No, he lets it sit. The Messiah is the son of David. He's a man. The Messiah is the Lord of David. He's God. How are these both true? That's what he's letting them do. If you were to go and put yourself in the temple, listening to this, and the questions are coming at you, and you're listening, and you're going, okay, I I see you, you're a man, you're you're dressed ordinary, you look like a normal person, but you're saying that the the Messiah is the son of David. Okay, I get that. I've always known that. I I believe that. But you're also pointing back to say that the Messiah is, is the Lord of David. And as you're sitting there processing, you almost wonder, like, the logic, okay, is clear, and it's as if the light bulb goes off, and if they get what he's saying, right there in the temple courtyards, these people listening would go, you're God. I am speaking to God. God has come. Because you are the son of David. Everyone knows that. Everyone has agreed with that. Everyone's called you that. That's what we've all agreed on. You're the son of David, but you're also David's Lord. I mean, the Jewish person couldn't fathom a person greater than David. David was the highest of the high in terms of what Jews believed about their king. And now this man right in front of me is David's Lord. That means he's divine. That means he's God, very God. The sunrise goes up in their understanding. This Jesus that's standing in front of me has claimed to be the Messiah. 
He is more than a man. The Messiah is God. He is standing right in front of me. Could you imagine the sensation of realizing this guy who's asking you weird, a little bit tricky questions, as soon as all of them click into place, you realize you are talking with the one who made you. You're talking with the one who called you into existence. You're talking to the pre-existent, eternal Son of God, made man for the redemption of his people. You're talking to God. You see, the church has always been struggling and fighting to keep the person of Jesus Christ clear. Because you can go wrong on either side, right? You can deny that the Messiah is God. You can deny that Jesus is God. You could say that he was a great man. You could say that he did all these things. You could say that he even had extra powers that were not ordinary for a human being to have. But if you deny that Jesus is God, you've embraced a false gospel that cannot save. Or you can go the other route. You can say that this was God, and that's the explanation for all the supernatural things he did. He is the Lord of David, and that's why he could raise the dead, and that's why he could heal the sick. But if you deny his humanity, you've embraced a false gospel that cannot save. And so through the ages, the church has always been fighting to make clear who Jesus is. And if you get either, if you get wrong on either side, you miss him. Or if you're imbalanced in either side, you're too focused on his humanity, you forget that he's divine. Or you're so focused on his divinity, you don't remember that he's a man. You get imbalanced in your walk with Christ. Jesus is a man, right? And Jesus is God, right? David's son and David's Lord. Both are true. That's what Jesus is explaining to the crowds right there in front of them. He is helping them see, listen, yes, you're right. I am the son of David, but let me clarify what you need to understand. Psalm 110 makes it very clear. I am also David's Lord. This is my temple. These are, you are my people. I have come. I've entered the world. He has, Jesus has, two natures. He is one person with two natures. He has a human nature like you and I, and he has a divine nature just like the Father. What the theologians have called the hypostatic union. The union of the human and divine natures in Christ. One Puritan named John Aerosmith called Jesus the Theanthropos, the connection of two Greek words, Theos, referring to God, Anthropos, referring to man. We can say he is the God-man, that he is unlike us and that he is fully and truly and completely God, but he is like us, that he is fully, truly, and completely man. As a man... He can sympathize with us because he knows what it's like to be weak. He knows what it's like to be poor. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be alone. He knows what it's like to experience hunger and thirst. He knows what it's like. We've read it in the Gospel of Mark. He knows what it's like to need rest. He knows what it's like to experience pain, to suffer, and to die. He was truly a man. But in our text, he's describing 
and demonstrating and emphasizing something that will clear up for us more of who Jesus is, that he is God. Reading uh, devotionally through the book of Hebrews. And earlier this week, I'm reading through chapter 2, just reflecting on it as I read, and there's this one little snippet of a section, not even the main part of the section that struck me, got my attention, is in chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, for it was fitting that Jesus... And then there's this little, almost parenthetical statement that's just mind-blowing if you stop and think about it. For it was fitting that Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, and then he goes on to talk about what Jesus did. Just throwing it in there. For whom and by whom everything exists. Jesus created everything for his glory. Think about this with me. All things exist because Jesus made them. Jesus designed them in eternity past before anything was made. And then in the expanse of creation, he set them forth by the infinite power of his hand. All things were made by him. There is nothing that you can look at or see or point at in heaven or on earth visible or invisible, that came into existence apart from Jesus. Jesus created everything, and the author of Hebrews writes, that he created everything with a purpose, and the purpose is for himself. Everything that has been made exists with a clear biblical purpose for the glory of Jesus Christ. It was all made for him. Everything in the universe Every mountain, every thunderstorm, every raindrop, every galaxy, every anthill, every elephant and dolphin and spider and dog and name other animals in the kingdom, animal kingdom. And the furthest galaxy out there that no human eye has ever seen, and the core of the earth that no human will ever venture to, all of it made by Jesus for his own delight. He created all of it. It's all for him. All of it's for his glory. We, church, listen, and individually we need to apply this to ourselves. You are not the center of the universe. It's all about Christ. It was made by him and for him. And everything that has ever existed always exists for Jesus Christ. Why are we here? For Jesus Christ. Why do you live? For Jesus Christ. Why are you still alive is because he holds you together by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. You are breathing this morning because Jesus is a purpose in your life, and it's for you to live for his glory. He is God. He has always existed, eternally existed with the Father, incarnate in time as Jesus, the son of David, but he is still the Lord of David. He came, he loved, he lived, he laid down his life, he rose from the dead, he lives forever as the perfect Son of God who made the perfect sacrifice for sin, inviting all people everywhere to repent of their sins and to trust in him for salvation. He is divine and he is man. You're not the center. I'm not the center. This church is not the center. Jesus is the center of all things. And if you go read through the New Testament, what you'll you'll find is that they're always referring to the divinity of Christ. It just keeps coming up. I'll mention a few. John 12, Jesus is identified with Yahweh himself. 2 Timothy 4, Jesus is described as the judge before whom we must give an account. In Acts, he's the holy one, a phrase described 
or given only to God. In Revelation, he's the Alpha and Omega. He's the first and the last. In Titus, Jesus is called God our Savior. He's called Mighty God in Isaiah 9. He's called the Lord of Glory in 1 Corinthians 2. Everything that God is, Jesus is. Jesus possesses eternity. Jesus possesses omnipresence. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's immutable and changeable. He is sovereign. He is the Adonai. He is over all things. Everything exists for him. Everything was made by him. He's the center of it all. And he became a man. Throughout the ages, Christians have been trying to define this. And so the creeds, have been developed through theologians trying to grapple with Scripture and come and define the two-natured reality of Christ so that we might understand it in one one way. It is an ineffable mystery. And yet we must hold to what the Scriptures say. One creed puts it this way. The Nicene Creed, developed in 325, says, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. Begotten does not mean created. God of God, describing Jesus, okay? Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. It's like they're trying to make it clear. He's God. Very God, a very God. Don't confuse him as a mere man. He's more than that. He has a divine nature. He's very God, a very God. Begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Who, listen to this, this is glorious and moving. For us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Chalcedonian Creed in 451 AD further tries to expand on it and make it even more clear. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead. In other words, the same essence as God the Father and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In other words, the same essence as us, ordinary people. In all things, like unto us without sin. Further on, it says that he is to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, and inseparably. Church, this ought to make us fall on our faces in wonder, love, and praise that the eternal God, the transcendent, almighty, majestic creator of the entire world through whom and for whom all things exist became a man for us and our salvation. If Jesus was not divine, there would be no salvation for any of us. But since he is divine, is there any sin that he can't forgive? That his blood on that cross cannot wash clean? Is there any sinner so far gone that he can't track them down and redeem them and draw them in and adopt them? He's God. Of course he can. 
Are there any of you that are so stuck in the habits of sin, the sludge and the mire of your own sin, that you have begun to think that maybe you can never escape it? You can never get out of it. That you're destined to walk this way in this sin until you die and you go home to glory. Well, if Jesus was merely a man, then yes, you would be stuck. But he is God. He is omnipotent. And listen, on top of it all, as he came into the world, it has become abundantly clear that he is for us. He is for us. And you know that he's for us because not only did he teach and show his love, but then he voluntarily walked that hill to Calvary and shed his blood on that tree outside Jerusalem to make payment for his beloved church, for his beloved children. You are so loved, church, by Jesus Christ, by the God of the universe, with an infinite, unchangeable, almighty love. Because it is a divine love. It is a perfect love. And so, Christians, we should be very hopeful about our future. Right? If that Jesus is for us, if the the, the Jesus who has made all things and loves us that much is for us, we got to walk out of this room with our heads held high, not because we are anything, but because he is everything. And he loves us. And he will never leave us nor forsake us. He has died for us and he has paid the penalty for our sins. And if you're not a Christian, you've walked in the church this morning. Maybe you already knew that Christians believed this. But here I am making the claim that the creator God entered into his creation, which, by the way, is a pretty distinctive truth unique to Christianity. I wonder if you think I'm crazy for believing that. Well, you'd have to think all of us here who are trusting in Jesus are crazy because we all believe this. I wonder if you have a materialistic worldview that precludes you from believing any such thing could ever be possible. So let's ask the question, what would have happened? Let's just imagine, if you wouldn't mind for a moment, imagining with me what would happen if it were true that God did enter his own creation. What might happen? One author makes a few significant points. First, if God did become a man, we would expect him to be so utterly different and set apart from everyone else. Jesus was exactly that. So perfectly holy that no one could convict him of sin. He even outrightly asked people, Which one of you convicts me of sin? And no one could. Second, if God became man, we would expect that his teachings would be the most profound words ever spoken. This is exactly what happened. That everywhere Jesus went, people said things like, no one has ever spoken like this man. And to this day, his words are treasured all around the globe and people are risking their lives to bring the words of Jesus to every corner of the globe. Third, if God became a man, we would expect to see some supernatural power on display, wouldn't we? Because he's God. Of course, this is exactly what all the earliest historians say. The biographies have it right. 
Right here in the scriptures, we have the evidence that this is what he was known to be doing. He was raising the dead. He was calming storms. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. This is what he did, the supernatural power of God working through him. Why? Because he was God. He was divine. Fourth, if God became a man, we would expect him to change the world. And I ask you, is there anyone who has changed the world like Jesus Christ? There is no one who comes close. Not even close. The whole world is different because of the arrival of Jesus Christ. So you either must say, well, he's a liar. He must have been a pretty good liar. All the people who believed him went and died for him, believing what they what he taught to be true. They martyred themselves to death because they so were convinced of his teachings. Or he's crazy. He's just a lunatic and somehow was able to persuade the entire world to take him seriously. Or what he says right here is true. Yes, he is David's son, messianic, promised one from David's line, and he's David's Lord. David's God, David's Savior, David's Master, that he is divine. Listen, church, Jesus is the center of the entire universe. He's the center of all of history. And to be saved, if you're not yet saved, means you fall before him and recognize who he is and ask for forgiveness in repentance and trust that his death made payment for your sin, and trust that he rose again and is alive right now, willing to save a sinner, even a sinner like you. And Christians, we must understand that Jesus is to be the son around which our entire lives revolve, that he is to be worshipped and adored and treasured and admired and trusted and obeyed. That all of our lives and all the decisions we make and everywhere we go is in an effort to give Jesus the glory he deserves. Turn from self-centered living to Christ-centered living because he is the Lord of all. He's David's son, a man who suffered and died and rose, but he is David's Lord, the God who came and conquered sin and death and redeemed his people and, listen, is promised to come again. See him for, for, for who he truly is. Sunrise in your understanding and come to clarity on who Jesus truly is. Bow and worship him for, true, for who he truly is. Let's pray. Oh Lord, make us Christ-centered. Not self-centered not man-centered, not even church-centered, Christ-centered. Bring about repentance in those here who have not grasped the true nature of our Lord. Help us to live lives that are all about Jesus. Help our love and obedience to Jesus to be the decisive factor in every decision we make, how we talk, how we spend our time, where we live, what career we pursue, may it all be about the glory of Jesus Christ.
Oh, help us, Lord, because we love to live for ourselves. Work in us mightily for your own namesake. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing? name let angels prostrate fall bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. What a morning to worship our Lord Jesus Christ together. Amen. 
great time together. I hope to see you again tonight at 5 for our evening gathering. And you, miss.